and join us as we sing his praises together. Oh, God. 
Gracious Father, we thank you that uh, you are faithful and good. And as we gather today for worship, we come to uh, offer our praise to you, our thanks to you, and to, uh, to learn of you. We pray that you will, you will bind our hearts together in the love of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Share a word of greeting with others here in worship today. So we're back to our regular worship schedule in early morning uh, as opposed to mid-morning. So good to see all of you. And that, uh, again, will continue uh, through the, the rest of the year, basically. And uh, so next Sunday, we'll be gathered for worship again at 8, 29, 40, and 11. Uh, tonight at 5, uh, we're going to be gathering for our annual uh, potluck uh, picnic. And I've looked at the weather, and the weather app I looked at said that this afternoon is supposed to be clear of rain. And so that's what we're going with. Uh, that's what it's going to be, because that's what it said. So um, we're meeting out back here, and uh, we'll uh, have, as you can see, things that the church is going to provide. We'll be grilling and encourage you to bring some food, and we're inviting all the students uh, from the college that are on campus right now, as well as especially want to welcome people who are new to the church or the community, and uh, we hope that uh, you'll make this a part of your day beginning at 5, and we'll have some games and Things uh, to do as well as just some downtime, have a chance to interact with folks and uh, maybe a chance to connect with some people that you haven't had a chance to for a while or with some new people as well. Two weeks from today is the beginning of Christian Life Emphasis Week and uh, our speaker this year is A.J. Swoboda. He's from Portland, Oregon. He teaches in a seminary, actually a couple of different seminaries and also is a pastor of a church. And uh, he's written a few books and uh, we've asked the campus store to order a few copies of those uh, and I would, I've been reading through his books. They're, they're very enlightening and very thought-provoking. And you may want to pick up one of those and read that before uh, the Christian Life Emphasis Week starts. And you can get those at the campus store. And also, uh, two weeks from today will be it's the collection time for our uh, Matthew 2820 initiative, a refugee uh, initiative that we started about uh, back in May. And we're going to collect them on that day, and then we're also going to uh, redistribute uh, new booklets and uh, jars, and we will uh, take the ones you've been using, if you've been using them, take them back home, reload them, and uh, we'll be giving out, have new ones available also for people who weren't involved in the first time of that. So uh, we just want to make you aware of that coming up in a couple of weeks. I'd like to invite the ushers forward to assist us as we give back to God from all that he has given to us. I'm so confused I know I heard you loud and clear So I followed through Somehow I ended up here I don't want to think I may never understand That my broken heart 
is a part of your plan. When I try to pray, all I have is hurt and these four words. I will be done. I will be done. I will be done. I know you're good. Spend some time praying together. If you'd like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me.
Father, as we gather today, we do declare that you are good and merciful. You are gracious. Your desires for us are what are eternally best. You want more for us than we could dream or imagine. We just pray that you will help us to see that and to believe and to trust you. Father, this morning as we come to this moment of prayer, we we know that there are many needs, burdens, concerns, struggles, and joys in our lives. Father, through your compassionate power, we pray for all who suffer today. We pray for Jill Tyson, Blanche Weaver, Bruce Brenneman, Tammy Dunmeyer, Luke Heisinger, Wade Marsh, Sheldon Emerson, Doug Bogdan, Barb Rangel, Bob Jobert, Laurel Buker, Bill Getty, Warren and Ella Woolsey, Phil Muker, Mike Raybuck, Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Emily Cricklar, and for others that are on our hearts and our minds today. We pray for your healing grace for each one. We pray today, Father, for all who grieve. We think particularly of those who have experienced a, a recent death. We pray for Mark and Terry Sweet and their family at the death of Mark's mother this week. We pray for Phyllis Osgood and her family at the death of her sister this week. We pray, Father, that that you will surround each family, each person, with your loving arms of grace and mercy. And for other ways in which we grieve, we pray for your comforting presence. Father, we pray for all who today feel hopeless and restless about life. We pray for all who are in a time of transition, some by choice, some not. And we pray that we will experience and know your grace to us. Father, we we pray for the hospitals that the Wesleyan Church operates in Haiti and Sierra Leone and Zambia. As they continue to to need staff, as they continue to work among the, the great need of each of these nations, we pray that you will bring people to work and that you will help in the training process and that through the ministry of the hospital, not only will, will people's bodies be healed, but minds and souls and spirits. We pray for your grace upon each one of these hospitals, and may they sense your spirit helping everyone involved. We pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who face great struggles because of their faith in you. and We think especially of, of uh, Christians in the Demsa area, Nigeria. Lord, they have been attacked and people have died. And uh, we pray, Father, for an end to the, the difficulties and the persecution. And we pray, Father, that even in the midst of it, that you will give grace and peace and your spirit to your people. And that what those persecuting them see might change their hearts. Father, we... We pray for the other needs that 
are all around us in this world, in this nation. We pray for refugees and the struggles that they are facing in places all over the world. We pray for those who are dealing with recent disasters and terrorist attacks and pray for your grace upon them for healing and for help. We pray, Father, for uh, peace in the midst of places of conflict and war. We pray, Lord, for the institutions right around us and for Houghton College and Houghton Academy as they are preparing to begin new years. We pray for your grace on each institution and that this will be a year not only of learning but of spiritual growth. And Father, we pray for the churches around us. And today we think of the United Church of Nunday and Pastor Merritt. We pray that your grace would be upon her and upon the people of this congregation that they might know your grace to them and that they might be channels of grace to their community and beyond. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers. In all times, we declare that you are good and we trust you. Help us to know your grace that we might walk in your peace and your ways every day. And we ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This morning's scripture verse comes from the book of Psalm chapter 70, and following the reading, children ages 2 through 5 are dismissed for children's church. Psalm 70, starting in verse 1. Hasten, O God, to save me. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May those who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, aha, turn back because of their shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, The Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. Come quickly to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. Lord, do not delay. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand and join us as we sing. When peace like a
Memories can be one of the most wonderful gifts in the world. And memories can be one of the most uh, painful experiences in the world. We all have memories that make us feel warm and positive and all things good. And we all have memories that make us cringe and feel pain and maybe even a sense of despair. Memories are, um, are both a blessing and a curse. And there are some times when, when there are things that uh, we, we forget that we wish we could remember. And things that we remember that we wish we could forget. It's life. And what intrigues me about memory is that there is so much that Scripture talks about related to memory. Someone even has said, different scholars have said, that if you wanted to summarize, at the very least, the Old Testament, you could probably summarize it in one word, remember. Because over and over again, God says to his people, remember, remember, remember. Remember who you are. Remember where you've been. Remember who I am. Remember what I've done for you. Remember, remember, remember. And in remembering, they are much more apt to stay focused on God than when they forget. And Psalm 70 is about remembering. I I don't know about you, but for a long time, when I would pick up a new book, I would skip through those first few pages And move right to chapter 1. And then I began to understand that reading the preface and the foreword and the introduction, whatever the book may have in it, was actually uh, helped me understand the book far more. When I read those, the introduction and the preface and the foreword, it gave me a context for what was going to be said the rest of the book. And as I read the rest of the book, it, it it was much more clear to me because I had read those introductory remarks. And there are a number of psalms that are the same way. Now, not all the psalms have introductory remarks, but some of them do. And some of the introductory remarks are very generic. They just say a psalm. A psalm of David, a psalm of Asaph. But every so often, one of the psalms says, here's what this psalm is about. And Psalm 70 is one of those. And so at the very beginning of this psalm, it says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, asking God to remember him. Here is David, as the psalm begins, talking about remembering But David has turned the tables from what we typically think. Most of the time when we think about remembering and God, we're we're thinking about us remembering God. But here David says, God, remember me. He turns it around. He's saying, God, I'm in distress. I'm in trouble. I'm, I'm wrestling. I need you to remember me. And this is a not totally uncommon thing for God's people to pray. It's the prayer of the people in Egypt. In their slavery, they cry out and it says, God remembered them. Now, to remember is not just to recall to mind. It isn't just saying, oh yeah, I forgot about that. God doesn't look at, hear Israel and go, oh my word, I totally forgot about the Israelites down there in Egypt. They've been there 400 years. It totally slipped my mind. That, that is not what we mean when God says he remembered. 
When you talk about remembering in the biblical sense, it means to do something. It means to be active. And actually, that's a lot of what we talk about remembering as well. I mean, we're happy when someone may remember our birthday or remember a special moment, but we only really know they remember if they do something about it. And so scripture, when it says, when David says, God, remember me, he's saying, God, do something about my situation. Help me. We don't know the context of Psalm 70. We don't know what's going on in David's life. There is some speculation that David has committed some sin. It's related to that because Psalm 70 is almost identically verbatim to the last part of Psalm 40. And in Psalm 40, David is talking about uh, a sin he's committed, he's, he's repenting before God, and this is the last part of it. And that could well be the case, but when I read Psalm 70 taken out of the context of Psalm 40, it doesn't feel like David is talking about his sin. It feels like David's talking about someone attacking him. He's talking about his enemies wanting to kill him. And it brings to mind a couple of moments in David's life. One of them is before he's king, but he's been anointed to be king, and Saul is jealous of him and chases him with his army all over the countryside. And David is in great distress. And there are a few moments during that time when David's back is against the wall, and it looks like he's not going to get out of it. And the other instance is when David's own son, Absalom, starts a coup against David's kingdom and actually is so successful that David and his officials have to flee Jerusalem. And Absalom lives in the palace and controls the kingdom. And David in this moment is in agony and despair. But whatever the circumstance, we understand at times of life when we feel like David is describing here. Lord, my back's against the wall. Those who are against me are laughing at me and they're saying, we've got him now. And it feels as if there is no way out of the circumstance. But but this isn't just uh, this isn't just about David. Remember, David is 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 the one who to whom God said, "From you, my Messiah will come." This is bigger than just David. This is about God's whole uh, plan for redeeming the world, the whole plan of eventually bringing the Messiah. This is bigger than just David. This is about all of God's people. And I sometimes think about that with the circumstances of life. Because quite frankly, in comparison to what many of our brothers and sisters face throughout the world, what we encounter in terms of opposition is sometimes minimal. Every week, when we, when we read about and we pray for the persecuted church, we are reminded what some of our brothers and sisters go through every single day. And the struggle and the difficulty and the pain that they are experiencing. And there are times when I read story after story after story. In country after country after country. And I think, God, is, is the church going to make it? Is it going to just be obliterated in these places? Is, is it too much? And there is a feeling of a temptation to despair. And we cry out to God... Be present. Help us.
And in those moments, my first prayer, as I prayed today, was God, and is God, remove the threat. Take away the opposition. Get rid of the, of the, of the pressure. And that's a very natural thing to pray. I mean, we pray that for ourselves and for others all the time, right? Lord, I'm in a dire circumstance. I need you to, to relieve this pressure. I need you to, to back off the opposition. It's what we do. It's what we pray. And it's good to pray that. It's fine to pray that. It's exactly what David prays. In verses 2 and 3, David prays this prayer. May those who try to kill me be humiliated and put to shame. May those who take delight in my trouble be turned back in disgrace. Let them be horrified by their shame, for they said, Aha, we've got him now. David is saying, Lord, do something about my enemies. Do something about those who are causing the problem. It's a natural thing to pray. What intrigues me about David's prayer is that it is different than some of the other prayers that David and others in the Psalms pray about their enemies. Because sometimes those prayers, they're the kind of prayers that make us really nervous. You know, they're the kind of prayers that, that our non-Christian friends and, and neighbors and family members point to to say, this is the kind of God you worship. As it talks about dashing against stones and mountains falling on villages and all these kinds of things. And they're hard to explain and they're hard for us to deal with. Though when you boil it down, it's really God just replying to to the injustice in our world with justice. And surely we want to worship a God who cares about justice. But this isn't what David prays. He doesn't say, God, destroy my enemies. He says, humiliate them. Bring shame to them. In fact, make them feel horrified at what they're doing. And it seems to me that what David is praying is, Lord, shake them up so that they realize that what they're doing is wrong. And in realizing that, in feeling embarrassed and shamed and horrified at their behavior, they might actually stop what they're doing and maybe even turn toward you. It is often in a, when, a, when a feeling of shame and remorse and, and realizing what we're doing comes to us that it jars us so that we stop and realize, wait a second, this is not what I want to be doing. I mean, it, it's how God gets through the Apostle Paul. He's walking on this road to Damascus to terrorize the Christians there. And on the way, Jesus blind, blinds him with the light and speaks to him and appears to him. And, and he is overwhelmed with shame about what he's doing. And his life is changed and transformed. And instead of praying sometimes that our enemies be destroyed, we pray that God would so work in them that maybe that he would, they would see him in us and they would be ashamed of what they're doing and turn to him. Because that's God's desire for all people. The vindication of God upon those who oppose him is not to destroy them. That does not bring joy to God. What brings joy to God is to see his enemies become his friends. To see God, God to see those who oppose him to come to follow him. That is, that's the whole plan of Jesus. This is why Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them. 
In one of his books, A.J. Swoboda, our clue speaker, uh, writes something like the fact that he says, Jesus did revenge. And Jesus had revenge for people. It was different than our revenge because our revenge tends to be retaliation. Jesus' revenge was resurrection. And while we want to retaliate against our enemies, Jesus wants to save them. And Jesus' response to his enemies crucifying him was to be risen from the dead. And then those who opposed him and hated him and put him on the cross. And those who looked in horror and shame and grief about him being on the cross. And those who didn't seem to even care have a way to have their lives changed. And that's the heart of God. And it's hard when you're in the middle of a situation. It's hard when I think about brothers and sisters being persecuted around the world. It's hard not to want to retaliate against the people doing this. But I am convinced that it is God's plan and purpose and will that everyone turn to him. And so as we think about how we pray about the pressure and the opposition against us, to pray that God will do something to turn people's hearts to him instead of just wanting vengeance upon them. But David goes on and he turns it around and now he says, I'm not only going to pray about those who are opposed to me, I'm praying for those who are are on my side. He says in verse 4, he speaks about those who seek God and, and those who love God's salvation. That they will search for him and be filled with joy and gladness. And those who love his salvation will repeatedly shout, God is great. I think, I think David is trying to offer a word of encouragement to those who see God the way he does. Because you have to know, especially if it's related to one of these other circumstances in his life, either Saul chasing him around the countryside or Absalom having, um, having uh, taken the throne, that there are lots of people who are very discouraged. Thinking, I thought David was God's man. I thought David was going to do this. I thought David was safe. And now look what's happened. Lord, what's going on? And I think David wants to encourage them to keep on seeking God. To keep on recognizing that God's way of dealing with people and God's way of bringing about his deliverance is always right. And when you talk about loving God's salvation, it's really a sense of of embracing the way in which God delivers his people. And the way in which God, God designs the whole idea of God redeeming the world. And sometimes it's hard to embrace that. I mean, David here is crying out for God to act now. And he doesn't seem to be doing that. And somehow David has to still say to these people, look, trust God. The way that God has designed this rescue, the way that God is going to help us is right. Even if we don't see it right now. And for those of us who are on the other side of Jesus, we step back and say... Lord, thank you that the way of the cross is the way of life. Even though we have to remember, and even though in the back of our minds we hear echoing Jesus' words, if you want to be my disciples, you take up your cross 
and you follow me. It's in the moments when I ponder those words that I'm a little less enthusiastic about God's way of salvation. I want God's way of salvation to be, I'm going to rescue you from any difficulties. I'm going to rescue you from all the hard stuff that life brings. I'm I'm going to make it easy and simple and comforting. And and you don't have to worry about all this other stuff. Yeah, Jesus went to the cross, but you know what? I'm, I'm going to give you a much easier road. But that doesn't seem to be the way God works. And somehow, in, in, our, in our struggles and in our burdens, we continually embrace whatever way God desires to bring about salvation, deliverance, whether it's in the circumstance or the bigger picture. But he also talks about people who seek God. And then in seeking God, there is joy. But notice, he doesn't say there is joy in finding God. He says there's joy in seeking God. When I read through the pages of Scripture, it seems to me that there are many people who give their lives seeking God and never find all that they are hoping to find for their life on this earth. And they have come to realize that the joy is in the seeking, whether we find what we're looking for or not. Now we go back to what Jesus said in Matthew, and he said, if you seek, you find. But I think in that context, Jesus is not saying, if you seek, you'll find all of this uh, relief, and, and you'll find life to be exactly what you want it to be. I think he's saying, if you seek, you will find me, and I'm enough. Our eyes will be opened to God's presence when we seek him. It was like a few years ago, we, we bought a, a Chevy Forenza, or an Oldsmobile Forenza, I guess it was. I'd never heard of a Forenza before, this, this model of, of Oldsmobile car. I'd never heard of it before. I'd never seen one before. I'd never, never thought of it before. And then we bought this car. And what's so amazing is as soon as we bought that car, I saw forenses everywhere. You ever had that kind of an experience? And, and it's not as though because we bought one, everyone else went, oh, we should buy one too. This is great because Wes and Cindy are the lead. We do whatever they do. So let's all buy forenses. And all of a sudden now they appear. I just was... My attention was just awakened to the fact that this was a car that people drive. And I saw them all over the place, but they were always there. And there's something about that in in the seeking that we do of God. God is always present. God is always with us in our struggles and our burdens and our joys and our sorrows. But when we seek him, we are opening up our eyes to see him. We begin to realize that he's there. Why? Because our focus is on him instead of on us and our struggles. When we're seeking God, we're saying, God, it's all about you. It's all about what you want. It's all about what you desire. I see you. And I may not get to the end that I want. And you may not do things the way I want you to do them. But that's okay. Because I know you're here. We'll come back over here. As David prays for both his enemies and his friends. 
those who follow God and those who don't. He still says in verse 5, but Lord, I am poor and needy. I am poor and needy. I, I need you. And when he talks about needing God, it, it is not a sense of despair as if he's saying, I need you. I wish I didn't, but I do. It's rather a declaration of joy. God, I need you, and I am so glad that I do. Needing God is built into creation. Needing God is not a character flaw in us. It's how God created us to be. I've been thinking a lot about, about creation and, and the Garden of Eden and, and, and what it was like before Adam and Eve sinned and, and after. And, and one of the things that I've been thinking about as I process this and look through that scripture and study it is to realize that my original idea that Adam and Eve were perfect is no longer my thought process. Because if Adam and Eve are perfect, then they don't need God anymore. If they're perfect, then how could they possibly have sinned? There is something in the way God created them that they always needed God. They always needed God. And, and you, see in, you see a glimpse of that in the way that they talk about God's command to not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says originally to Adam, you are not to eat from any fruit of the garden, but you cannot eat the fruit from the tree of the, gar- of, the, of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve hasn't been created yet when God gives Adam that command. And so the only way Eve is going to know God's command is Adam tells her. And when we get to chapter 3 and Eve has this conversation with the serpent, what does she say to him? She says, God said we're not to touch the fruit." the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And somehow, between what God said to Adam and what Eve says to the serpent, there has been miscommunication. Either he didn't say it the way God did, or she didn't hear it the way Adam said it. But either way, there was some kind of miscommunication. And there also, probably in some sense, as someone pointed out to me this week, that they're probably beginning to worry about whether they can really not eat that fruit. And so their plan may be to say, well, we're not supposed to eat it. So to guarantee that we're not supposed to eat it, let's not touch it. And so we'll build a little fence around that command. And instead of, instead of having the freedom to touch the tree, because quite frankly, how do you tend the garden if you can't touch it? But they, so instead of doing that, they become fearful that maybe they will eat the fruit. And so they say, well, instead of just eating the fruit, let's make a law. Let's become a little bit legalistic and let's build a little bit wider fence and just make sure not that we don't eat it, but we don't touch it. And you can already begin to see the seeds of their imperfection, not sin, but imperfection. And I think that is built in to the creation story because Adam and Eve have always needed God. And the difference between before they sinned and after is that before they sinned, they knew they needed God and they celebrated that because it drew them closer and closer to God, the source of life and flourishing. And after they sinned, they refused to acknowledge their need for God. 
and they cut themselves off from the source of life and flourishing. And you and I have that same struggle. We have come to believe that that somehow needing God is just that desperate place where we find ourselves sometimes. And we sometimes think that being holy is being good. And, and I've even, I think it's been implied through the years of, of people teaching about what it means to be a holy person, what holiness is about, is to say, I've reached a place in my life where I am so spiritual that I really don't even need God anymore. I'm good. I can handle it. I've grown so much that I've really kind of outgrown God. When the reality is people who are holy are more cognizant of their need for God than anyone else. It is that need for God every moment of every day maybe is the best definition of what it means to be holy. Because in that need, in the acknowledgement of that need, and even in the celebration of that need, we are saying, God, I can't exist without you. You are my life. You're my source. You're everything. I need you. Not as a, as a, as a declaration of despair, but as a declaration of joy. And isn't this what Jesus says separates the people who follow him and the people who don't? The people who follow him recognize their need and run to him, and the people who don't follow him reject the fact that they need anything from him and run away from him. And David is struggling with that. David wants this thing to happen immediately. Three times in this passage, he says, God, come now, come now, come now. Don't delay. I need you now. If you don't do this now, it's not going to happen now. And, and quite frankly, we have all prayed that prayer, right? We've all said, God, I need you. And not tomorrow, not the next day, now. I need you now. And God hears that prayer. And sometimes God responds Immediately, but sometimes he doesn't. Because sometimes the very best thing for us spiritually is for God to just be silent. Because in the silence, we keep coming back to him. In the silence, we begin, God can speak into our lives about something that may be more important to us than God is. In the silence, we are forced to decide, am I going to trust God or not? In the silence, we come face to face with the reality of our lives. Do I believe that God is who he says he is? That God keeps his word? That God does what he promises to do or not? And the silence is hard. David is struggling. He is wrestling. And I don't think this is the first time David's offered this prayer. He's been praying this prayer for a while. And he's watching everything close in upon him. And he's becoming more and more desperate. But he's also declaring as he gets to the end of this prayer, of this psalm, it's not a prayer. It's a declaration. God, you are my helper. You are my savior. I trust you.
I trust you. At some point in our lives, we come to the place where we believe God is bigger than anything that's against us. God is bigger than any struggle. God is bigger than any enemy. God is bigger than any of the burdens and the difficulties of our lives and of God's people. They are no match for him. You know, every time I read this psalm, my mind jumps forward a few hundred years to an incident in the life of Jesus that Mark records in the fourth chapter of his gospel. Throughout that chapter, it's fairly early in Jesus' ministry, and all day he's been teaching about the kingdom, telling parables about how the kingdom grows and how the kingdom expands and and how God works and brings about the kingdom. And when the day comes to an end, he gets in the boat with his disciples to cross the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is exhausted. And he crawls into the end of the boat and he falls asleep. And as they make their way across the sea, an unexpected storm comes up. And it is one of the fiercest storms that these disciples, many of them fishermen, have ever faced. And they are scared to death. They are sure they're going to sink. And here's Jesus sleeping at the end of the boat. And they run to him. And I can see them shaking him and saying, Jesus, aren't you going to do anything? Don't you care? Do you not see what's happening here? Jesus, remember us. And Jesus wakes up out of his sleep and looks around and he he demands that the, the wind and the waves cease and the storm stops. And then he looks at the disciples and he says, why are you so afraid? Do you have no faith? And I think this whole story is reminding us that the evil one is continually trying to, to bring to an end God's great plan of redemption. Again and again and again, the evil one is at work to try to keep Jesus from getting to the cross, doing what God called him to do. And I think this storm is his threat to sink the whole lot of them and end it. And the reason Jesus can sleep is because he is convinced that God is bigger than the evil one. And God is bigger than anything that the evil one can bring against them. And the kingdom is secure. And when he asks the disciples, don't you believe? He's saying, don't you believe that God is bigger than anything? And I don't think Jesus calmed the storm because he was afraid the boat was going to sink. He just calmed the storm so the disciples would calm down for a little bit and he could teach them a little something. And sometimes the storms keep coming. Sometimes they stop. But in the end, it is a question of whether we believe that God is who he says he is, that God does what he promises to do, and we trust him. David begins this psalm as a means of asking God to remember him. But when you boil it down, the psalm is really about us remembering God. It's about us remembering who God is, that God is good and righteous and truth and merciful and trustworthy. 
And though, and that is true, whether life is pressing us to the limits or not. The question for each of us, in light of whatever we're experiencing or thinking about God's people around the world, is in the midst of all of that, do we trust him? Gracious Heavenly Father, you are good. We pray that you will indeed remember us by giving us grace to remember you, to trust you, to declare that you are great and there is no other God but you. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing.
make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.